Amen. Uh, before, well, before, before, um, let me just, I just want to start by saying something that's kind of resonating in my mind, and I, I like this. Um, so one of my daughters was helping lead a, a youth worship thing um, on Friday, and before she got up to worship, she had an image in her mind of, um, or kind of almost a vision of being in a room where it was just her and God, and that her worship was just to God, and it was just, and that sort of thing. And so when she got up in front of all these youth, which she was scared to do, to her it was about just her and God, right? And I love that because actually for all of us, with whatever God's called you to, however God's made you, whoever, who you are, there's a, a distinct, there's a way in which actually you live your life unto God. And how that, what that looks like, what that, like, don't let anyone stop you from living your life unto God. I was reading this morning in 1 Corinthians 1, and I, I just love this, where it says, God chose the weak to shame the strong. And he keeps doing it, right? And if any of us ever think that we're strong in whatever way, that's foolishness because we should constantly be coming before God going, I'm weak, you're the strong one. Let your strength work through me. And so, um, so like, we all have our own race to run. Living for God is what matters. Um, and so I just want to kind of put that before you because um, it's just pinging around in my mind right now. Um, I want to, before I jump into what I want to look at with you today with this passage in Revelation 7, I want to say a few words about how to read Revelation because I think a whole bunch of people go, I think a lot of us would agree if you were to, if I were to ask, do you find Revelation difficult to read? A whole bunch of people would be like, yes, right? And there's a few things that I think that are helpful to be said about this. Um, and that I think are really can really help unlock revelation for you, okay? And the kind of what I want to say is that revelation is a type of literature that we don't have today anymore, okay? It's apocalyptic literature. That's what it's known as, apocalyptic literature. And the most recent example of apocalyptic apocalyptic literature that I have in my library is from the 12th century by Hildegard of Bingen, okay? And if you read Hildegard of Bingen, um, you will you will read it and think this sounds very much like revelation because there's some ways that apocalyptic literature ways it's written what it's its tone and what it grabs onto that's different from anything else you know now let me backtrack for a second you already have all sorts of types of writing that you read that have its own rules without re realizing it right so when you read a history book, you don't read it in the same way as you read poetry, or you don't read that in the same way as you read a novel. Each of these different types of writing have their own rules that you're used to. You don't read a cookbook and think, Where, who's the main character, right? Like, you know, you're, you're used to a very different set of rules with all these different types of writing. In the same way with apocalyptic literature, we're not used to it. And so the question becomes then, how does a modern person read apocalyptic literature? What are we missing? And so, um, and just a few kind of helpful points. One is, I think there's a place for analysis with Revelation, but usually that's all we do with Revelation. I think the place for analysis is in helping us get the, it's, it's full of connections with other parts of the Bible. And an ancient mind that was more familiar with their Bible may, may have made those connections quicker, 
okay? So there's a place for analysis to help us almost get up to their speed, as it were, but they heard it read publicly. They heard it read in big chunks, like the whole book in one shot, publicly. And the way that, that you read apocalyptic literature, something I would, a few kind of helpful things that I think help us today, is I would say that reading apocalyptic literature is more like, it's reading that's more like we would look in an abstract painting. They didn't have abstract paintings. They would think that was weird, just like we think apocalyptic literature is weird, right? Apocalyptic literature is written with vast, big imagery, and the, the images are meant to evoke something emotionally in us, okay? And so to a degree, we should read apocalyptic literature with the imagination, with the emotions, in such a way that we're not focusing too closely on what's happening, but instead we're getting the, the image. We're, we're letting, we're being impacted by, you know, for example, um, people will look at the, the dragon that's attacking the baby in Revelation 12, and like, you, you're like, and the, the imagery around this dragon and how fierce and whatever it is, we're not meant to then, although there is symbolism and, you know, if we analyze the number of horns on the dragon's head, right? There might be some meaning there, but the, pr the primary meaning is, this, is about the strength of that dragon, right? And the primary meaning is meant to be almost like we are fighting an, an, an opponent that is stronger than us and that will win. That's the kind of, in Revelation, again and again, the opponent is stronger and will win and you will die for your faith. And you know what though? In the end, we win right? And so Revelation is, again, written with this beautiful imagery. And what I'd really encourage you to do is actually go back to Revelation and read it in a way that's different than you've read it before, with the imagination, with the emotions, with an awareness of what, the what they were going through as a persecuted church. And then it will pull out of things, emotions and feelings that you haven't had from Revelation before, okay? And so just want to give that to you um, that because I, I think that's important for how we are often misreading Revelation as apocalyptic literature. OK, just there you go. All right. Now let me get to my talk. That was all free. OK, um, no. The, um, all right. Um, let me let me start with something just a bit of fun. Um, ooh, hold on. I'm good. I just made put my notes in the wrong order. Um, anybody watch Big Bang Theory? Okay, I, I really enjoy Big Bang Theory. In the words of Sheldon Cooper from Big Bang Theory, um, after his World of War, he was despondent after his World of Warcraft account had been hacked, okay? And he says this, 3,000 hours, 3,000 hours, clicking on that mouse, collecting weapons and gold. It's almost as if it was a complete waste of time. <laughs> Love that. Um, Contrast that with something like with the words of Jesus, Matthew 19, 29. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. If there's a big thing I want you to take away from this talk that I'll keep coming back to, it's this. And that's, it's whatever you give up for God, it's worth it. Okay? 
Whatever you give up for God, it's worth it. Now, in, the, in our passage, what we get is, is we get kind of this multitude that are worshiping, and there's a beautiful picture of worship here. And I want to kind of think, I want to jump into the middle of our passage first, starting at verse 13. I want to think about who these people are, and then jump back to the beginning of our passage to look at their worship, and the end of the passage to look at um, their reward, Okay. And so first, who are these people? Verse 13, these in white robes, this elder asks John, who's on the island of Patmos in this vision, these in white robes, who are they and where did they come from? This is a weird conversation here because um, it's almost like a dream-like conversation because John knows that the elder knows, like this is one of the elders around the throne. And so he says, I answered, sir, you know, and he said, and then the elder is the one telling him, right? These are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Now, um, by the way, something I like right here, they've washed their robes in the blood of the lamb. I'm not good at laundry, but I know if something's white, you don't wash it in blood, right? Like, um, like this, but this is, you know, obviously clearly symbolic here about the forgiveness they've received through Christ. Um, and we've got to go back as well. This is building a building picture that we get from earlier chapters of Revelation. And so, for example, we go back to chapter 5, we find that there's this crisis moment in chapter 5 where they need someone who's worthy to open the scroll. And no one can be found who's worthy to open the scroll. And so John, in his vision, he, he, be, he begins to weep. And this angel consoles him and says, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah has triumphed, the root of David. He is able to open the scroll and its seals. And this is this moment, this crisis moment. And as the angel says that, you expect Jesus in glorified form like we saw back in chapter 1. You expect Jesus in glorified form to show up, right? The lion of the tribe of Judah. But then we read this in Revelation 5, verse 6. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain. I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain. Like that Jesus would be portrayed like that as weak. Their robes washed in the blood of the lamb. Who are these people? These, these people are people who have suffered even unto death. It describes them as people that have come out of the tribulation. And by the way, again, there's something here that I think we sometimes get wrong. Um, when you read Revelation, sometimes the way that dates and time is handled can be very interesting and difficult. And if we were to analyze the tribulation, we would go, it's clearly seven years. There's three and a half years, and three and a half years is clearly seven years. And then if you were asked the question, who are this multitude? It's clear they have come out of the tribulation, but it's clearly not meant to be just people that have come out of a seven-year span of time, all right? This is not just people that were being persecuted in Jesus' time, although it includes them. It includes Christians from across time who have been willing to die for their faith, and even Christians today in places who are being persecuted for their faith, right? And so the, the picture is these have come out of the great tribulation, and the picture here then, we, we're meant to read 
about these ones in white robes and we're meant to go, if I could be like them, right? Like it's a future picture. It's meant to stir us and meant to cause us to go, do you know what, God, if I need to die for my faith, I'm willing to do so. If I could be there with them with my white robe washed in the blood of the lamb, then I want to be there. Now, back in in chapter 6, we actually have these same people. And this is in chapter 6 is where we first get introduced to this people in in Revelation. And what we find in chapter 6 is that they're crying out for justice. They've died from persecution. They're crying out for justice. Revelation 6, verse 9. When I opened the fifth seal, I saw under under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. And they cried out in a a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? And then verse 11, again, this is the first mention of this, and they were each given a white robe and told to wait a little longer until the full number of their fellow servants, their brothers and sisters, were killed just as they had been. And we're in this time of waiting now, waiting where their full number of their brothers and sisters is coming in. Those that die for their faith now and those that like are part of that number. And so who are these people? Who are they? They are your brothers and sisters who have been willing to die for their faith. And again, we should want to be like them. Whatever you give up for God is worth it. And then there's this picture of worship. Again, there's a building picture of worship in these chapters. It's beautiful. Because in in chapter 4, we get the, the start of this where there's these glorious, complex creatures that are worshiping. And I love how complicated they are because I think it's meant to evoke a sense of like wonder, right? So there's these creatures that never stop worshiping God saying, holy, holy, holy. We use that in our communion liturgy. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And then when they worship, there's these 24 elders and they join in the worship. And part of their worship is a, is a picture of 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 humility and service. They lay down their crowns before the throne as they join the worship. So there's this picture in in chapter 4. But then in chapter 5, we revisit that place of worship, but now there's tens of thousands of angels worshiping. And then again now in chapter 7, we revisit that place of worship, but now the 144,000 are there. By the way, 12 tribes of Israel, 12,000 each, shows the kind of perfect plan of God right? And then we get to our passage for today. Again, revisiting this picture of this place of worship. And now we've got a great multitude that no one could could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language. And this picture of worship that we're revisiting, it's meant to stir in us this sense of awe, wonder, just the beauty of it, the how God is worthy of worship. And knowing that this is written to Christians throughout the ages who often sometimes might have felt alone, felt isolated, that they were living their faith out in a way that was where they were persecuted. And they were, if you ever, 
in living out the, what God has called you to, you feel like the odd one out. You feel like a minority. You feel like, do you know what? You're right. You're, you're part of a great multitude. Um, I wonder, um, I wonder for you, what's the, like what the biggest worship experience you've ever had might be. And like, you know, like this is nice, but when you have that sort of experience where you're at like a festival and there's a huge number of people, there's something really special about that, right? Um, one of the biggest ones for me was a thing called, has anybody ever heard of promise keepers? Okay. There's a few people. Yeah. Um, there was a Promise Keepers move, movement over in the States that for a little while, just for a little while, had like got lots of momentum and then it kind of fizzled or whatever. But at one point, they were having an event at the Metrodome um, in Minnesota. Metrodome was the biggest place where I'm from that you could have anything, okay? It could hold 62,000 people. And the Promise Keepers convention was going there, which you kind of think, really? Are they like, how's this going to work? Like, you know. Um, yeah, in Minnesota, which is like we have Wembley here, but Minnesota is like the, a tenth of the population of the UK or less than that. Anyways, but you get the idea, like, how are we going to fill the metro? Like, what's that going to look like? And also, it wasn't cheap. You were paying for a whole day of speakers and all sorts of things. And so you would buy your ticket. And it was only for men as well. This was a men's event. It was challenging men to be godly men. They sold out. And I had I was there and among the 62,000 men. And when you've got 62,000 men singing, what's really fascinating is the bass just hits you like it's bonkers. Like, it's, um, yeah. And that moment when you're joining with, and everywhere you look, everywhere you can see are people worshiping, mind-blowing. And it's nothing compared to the great multitude where, where, which no one could count. And we're meant to almost read Revelation and see that in our minds and experience it in a way, in the way that we read it. And it's meant to encourage us now because you might at times be on your own or among a minority or feel like your road is difficult, but we are part of the great multitude. And then we come to the end of our passage and we see these in white robes and the, the picture of how, what they what their position is like now. Remember, they've been persecuted even unto death. And we hear this in, in verse 15. They are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the temple will shelter them with his presence. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. Verse 17. The lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And I hope you can hear the echoes from all the way from back in Isaiah, the prophecies that, that use this, these exact same words, right on through to the end of Revelation, which use these exact same words. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. He will lead them to springs of water. The picture here is of, of a future hope that's worth it. Whatever you give up for God is worth it. When we properly see the picture in heaven, when we see what's happening, when we see what's real, what really counts, what really matters, whatever you give up for God is worth it. I want to um, pull this together with a, a letter, and I hope you'll let me indulge me in this, 
um, a letter from, he was known as Ignatius of Antioch. Okay, he was a bishop in the second century. And what happened was there was a situation where, and I want to read just some, a, a good portion of this letter because it's, it's stunning, right? Situation is that Ignatius is being taken from Syria all the way to Rome. There's a detachment of 10 soldiers that are taking him, and he knows that when he gets to Rome, he's probably going to die for his faith, okay? And so it's, it's a spectacle, it's a whatever, him being transported like this. There are times where they stop, where there's a degree to which he's able to communicate, and he's able to write a letter. And specifically, somehow he catches word that there are Roman Christians that are hatching a plan to rescue him, that they can overpower these 10 soldiers, they can rescue Ignatius, and what Ignatius does is he writes a letter to these Roman Christians, okay? And some of what he writes is stunning. So just kind of take some of this in. Let me read some of his letter. So he says this. Let me, I'm just pulling some bits out of his letter. You can find it online. Um, it's been translated to English many times. But here we go. Things are off to a good start. May I have the good fortune to meet my fate without interference. What I fear is your generosity, which may prove detrimental to, to me. For you can easily do what you want to, whereas it is hard for me to get to God unless you let me alone. I shall never again have such a chance to get to God, nor can you, if you keep quiet, get credit for a finer deed. For if you quietly let me alone, people will see in me God's word. But if you are enamored of my mere body, I shall, on the contrary, be a meaningless noise." Grant me no more than to be a sacrifice for God while there is an altar at hand. It is a grand thing for my life to set on this world, like the setting of the sun, and for me to be on my way to God so that I may rise in his presence. And he, his, he implores them, instead of to rescue him, he, he, he says, pray that I may have strength of soul and body so that I may not only talk but really want it. It is not that I me want merely to be called a Christian, but actually to be one. The greatness of Christianity lies in its being hated by the world, not in its being convincing to it. I plead with you, do not do me an unseasonable kindness. Let me be fodder for wild beasts. This is how I can get to God. And, and check this out. I love what he writes here. It's so vivid. What a thrill I should have from the wild beasts that are ready for me. I hope they will make short work of me. I shall coax them on to eat me up at once and not to hold off, as sometimes happens through fear. And if they are reluctant, I shall force them to it. Forgive me, I know what is good for me. Now is the moment I am beginning to be a disciple. May nothing seen or unseen begrudge me making my way to Jesus Christ. Come fire, cross, battling with wild beasts, wrenching of bones, mangling of lips, limbs, crushing of my whole body, cruel tortures of the devil, only let me get to Jesus Christ. For us, are we set on doing what is right, on doing what is good, on living for God, regardless of the cost, of regardless of how we might suffer for it, Let's pray. Father, thank you for the beautiful and challenging example of the early church. 
Uh, Father, we, we often, we're often tempted to settle for some, a watered-down version of faith. A discipleship that, doesn't, that isn't costly. Father, help us to live unto you. Strengthen us, use us, help in our weakness for you to be strong. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.